You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Welcome uh, to the gathering of Highland Baptist Church. If I'm the first one to welcome you this morning, if you got past the people on the outside doors and the inside doors and didn't say hello to anyone during the greeting time, let me say welcome. We're so glad you're here. My name's Jeremy. I am the group's pastor here at Highland. And uh, basically what that means is I have the privilege of overseeing uh, our adult ministry. Uh, If you came here expecting to see John Durham... Surprise. Uh, he's not here. Uh, once a year, here's what your pastor does. Here's the, here's the shepherd heart of your pastor. He wants to make sure um, that we are always learning and growing and figuring out how we can better serve the body here at Highland. He is serious about shepherding you. Uh, and so this weekend, uh, John and Jared uh, are going to a few churches in Louisville, Kentucky uh, to see if there are some things that they're doing that we might be able to use here in order to better serve you. And so I get to uh, introduce a new sermon series uh, called Foundations. And so this series will actually lead us all the way through June. It'll take us through uh, even our Timothy project. And so if you don't know what our Timothy project is, this is where uh, John uh, gives some young brothers, some young gifted brothers uh, in our church the opportunity to divide God's word for you. And so uh, there are a lot of exciting weeks of worship uh, and the study of scriptures coming for you. You got some gifted brothers coming. You got your pastor, John, who is incredibly gifted, but today you're stuck with me. uh, So we'll try and uh, work our way through it. Uh, So before we talk about the foundations of anything, whether that's repentance or studying God's word or hospitality or singing, uh, I want to make sure that we have uh, the most important and the firmest foundation and understanding of the gospel. And so if you're a man or a woman who's been uh, in our men's and women's Bible study, we'd be going through the book of Galatians over the course of the last semester If you haven't been in either of those Bible studies, I'll give you a brief synopsis, and this is for free, right? Uh, And it is this, that um, there is nothing that you can do to merit your salvation. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, as revealed in his word alone, and for the glory of God alone, that we are made right before God. And so listen, we don't have to do anything else. That's it. And that's a full stop. It's not about your behavior after Jesus saves you that gains you right standing. It's not about your personal righteousness. It is about the work of Jesus Christ alone, that he lived the perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death, and that on the third day he rose again, vindicating himself, proving that he is who he says that he is, and by that reconciling you and me, a bunch of sinners, to a holy, righteous perfect and just God. The theological word we use there is justification. That's vertical. And that does not change. No matter how big of a dog you are, no matter how crazy you feel like your life is, if you are in Christ in this room this morning, your justification is secure. Nothing changes it. 
But there's another theological term that we use, and it is called sanctification. This is the promise in the scriptures that where Jesus saves you, where he finds you, he will not leave you. But the work that he is doing in you by the power of his Holy Spirit is conforming you into his image, right? So we will all finish this looking like Jesus. And sometimes that's painful. And so I remember... Uh, at four, maybe five years old, like the first sin I remember, right? And it was this, uh, we were in Safeway. I was in Safeway with my mother and we were checking out and I saw a box of Smurfs. This was the early eighties. And I decided that I wanted one of those Smurfs. I didn't have any money. I didn't want to ask my mom to buy it for me. And so I picked up hefty Smurf and I stuck it in my pocket. Nobody saw it. I made it all the way out to the car, made it all the way to the house. I was clean. I had gotten away scot-free. And so I, I go straight to my bedroom. I pull hefty Smurf out of my pocket and I start playing with it. My mom walks in and says, what are you doing? And I got myself caught because rather than just say, oh, I'm playing with the Smurf that I had always, didn't steal. Uh, I said, oh, nothing. And I stuck it back in my pocket. And so she, she asked, what did you just put in your pocket? I'm like, nothing, nothing. No, you... You put something in your pocket. And so I pulled it out and it was a Smurf. And she's like, where'd you get that? I was like, uh, I was busted. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to lie like I was able to lie later in life. I wasn't that quick on my feet. And so I was like, I got it at Safeway. And uh, she said, well, you didn't have any money. How did you buy it? And so it comes out that I've stolen this Smurf. <laughs> and my mom got mad. Right, I was surprised by it, but she got mad. And so I thought she would get mad. I would like get a spanking and it would be all done, but that's not what happened. Well, I, she did get mad, I did get a spanking. Uh, but then she drags me back to Safeway, calls the manager out and makes me give the Smurf back to the manager and tell him how I had stolen it. And I was humiliated. But listen, I didn't know Jesus, so of course that was a thing that I did. But I always, growing up, like I thought that once Jesus saved me, that I, I wouldn't struggle with sin. Like I wouldn't want to steal Smurfs. I, I wouldn't want to do things that didn't please God. And here's what I found. Even after Jesus saved me, I still wrestled with sin. So I bought into the lie that what Jesus per purchased for me was perfection, was some sort of external righteousness, and I couldn't keep up. And so I, I was continually frustrated. And here's the beauty of the scriptures is I think we're in really good company. So you got David, right? Man after God's own heart, loved by God. And this is what he says in Psalm 40. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head, my heart fails me. A man after God's own heart saying that his sin is greater than the number of the hairs on his head. It's so bad that he cannot see. Paul wrote most of our New Testament, radically saved by Jesus, becomes the greatest church planter and missionary probably the world has ever seen. Like his life was about raising up new churches, about seeing people come to know Jesus. Walks in a level of power that you and I do not walk in, right? He, he didn't pray and ask God to heal people. He just told people to stop being sick and they stopped. He would drop a handkerchief, someone would touch it, boom, they're healed. You and I don't walk in that kind of power, right? But Paul 
greatest church planner and missionary the world has ever known says this in Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And later on in this same, uh, same chapter, same section, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul, loved by God, super Christian, wrestles with sin to the point where he says, I don't even know why I do these things. I don't want to do it, but I do it anyway. And then Peter, the rock on which the church is built. We see in Galatians 2, Paul calls him out to his face because he's eating with the Gentiles. And then this other group of people, the the circumcision party, the Judaizers, they come in and, and Peter begins to have this little bit of fear of man, right? So he gets up from the Gentiles and he goes and he sits with the Judaizers because he doesn't want them to think less of him. And so Jesus, Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. That's, that's a big thing. But even Peter, after Jesus, struggles with fear of man, struggles with sin. So for us this morning, here's what it would seem. It would seem that the true mark of faith for a follower of Jesus is not that we are sinless or even that we necessarily sin less. The true mark of faith for a follower of Jesus is our response in our sin. What do we do when we fail? I'll read it again. The true mark of faith for a follower of Jesus is not that we are sinless or even that we necessarily sin less. The true mark of faith for a follower of Jesus is our response in our sin. So what is the response of faith towards a sin that still plagues us right, towards this iniquity that lies close at hand, what is our response of faith? And I would contend this morning that that response of faith is repentance. Repentance. So 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. One thing I want to point out here, Regardless of whether it's worldly or whether it's godly, there is grief. And that's the reality of our sin, that our sin causes sorrow. And that sorrow is going to drive us in one of two ways. It's going to drive us towards death or it's going to drive us towards repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Life without regret. Can you imagine that? I don't know what your life was like before Jesus. I don't know what most of your lives are like right now. But I, I would guess that there's probably a little regret sometimes. And so there is a good godly sorrow that will lead us to repentance. And there is a worldly sorrow that will lead us to death. And we need to know what both of those things look like. And so I'm going to give you four things that you can look for to tell whether or not your um, repentance is worldly and leading to death, and four things that will let you know that your repentance, your grief is godly and is leading you towards repentance and salvation without regret. And so before we get there, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. It's gonna be a minute before I get there, but I promise we'll get there eventually. So two types of grief. We'll tackle worldly first. 
Worldly grief is almost always horizontal. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, does anybody in here have kids? Yeah, I have three. Um, and they are awesome and they can be terrible all at the same time. Uh, but here's what I found that there are many times when my kids, they're not sorry about what they've done. They're sorry they got busted. And those two things are absolutely different. So they lament the consequences of their sin. Here's how it works out in our life. Like, man, I'm sorry that my wife is angry. Man, I'm sorry that my kids, they hate me now. I'm sorry that my boss is probably going to fire me. I'm sorry that my friends have left me. I'm not sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry because my sin has cost me. There are consequences that I didn't want to have to endure. And that will lead us to death. So it is horizontal and it never rolls up. I just feel bad because my sin has cost me. And I didn't want to lose the things that I'm losing now. So worldly grief that leads to death, it is horizontal. It is emotional. It is emotional, which means this, that can there be tears and weeping and wailing and guilt that comes into a worldly sorrow that leads to death? Absolutely. I just said we feel bad about what our sin costs us. There is sorrow, but here's the reality. Emotions quiet down, don't they? Like I feel bad and as long as I feel bad about what I've done, it'll keep me from doing that thing again. But as soon as my wife isn't as angry as she was, as soon as my kids start to accept me again, as soon as my friend group comes back and we're cool again, as soon as my boss doesn't actually fire me, but he extends some grace, right? As soon as those emotions die down, where I find myself over and over again generally is right back in the place where I was afraid that I was going to lose everything. So an emotional sorrow, purely emotional sorrow, that is a worldly, worldly sorrow and it leads to death. So worldly grief is horizontal, it's emotional and it is passive. It's not concerned about putting sin to death. It's concerned with figuring out how to manage it. I don't want to give this thing up. I just need to figure out how to make it a little more healthy, how I can do it without people getting mad at me. And so in fourth grade, there's this kid that lived in my neighborhood and he always wanted me to come see his dog. And like, he was on me about it all the time. Hey man, come see my dog. Come see my dog. And I'm like, I don't care about your dog. I wasn't even supposed to hang out with the kid because my mom didn't want me to. Um, but he would always bug me about coming to see his dog. And so finally one day I'd had enough and I'm like, okay, I'll come look at your stupid dog. And so we walk a couple of streets over from my house. I walk into his backyard and I'm standing on a railroad tie. I mean, there's this white, I think it used to be white. I think it was white, um, but it was pretty dirty. Uh, mangy, mean looking, just nasty dog. And I'm like, great, it's a, it's a dog. It was on a chain, it was like all dirt around it. Like this dog just looks sad. Um, and so I turn around to walk off and then the dog lunges and the next thing I remember, I'm running down the street, right? And so this dog had uh, lunged out and had bitten a half dollar size chunk out of my bottom, 
And in the same way, we have this tendency, right? We know that our sin causes pain. We know that our sin will bite us or it'll bite other people. But rather than doing what we should do, what should have happened to that dog, he didn't need to be chained up. He, didn't need, he needed to be put down. And here's how I know that. That sounded mean, just saying it like that. But he had like heartworms. He had worms in his brain. He was, he, he was infested with ticks. Like this dog was just on his last leg. Consequently, and this is for free, my grandfather made fun of me hard because after that dog bit me, he died. It was like three days later, he died. And my grandfather was like, it's funny that he had all these worms, all these ticks, all of these things wrong with it, and it took biting you to kill it. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. I gotta lay that down. Regardless, right? And so this dog was sick. This dog didn't need to be managed. This dog didn't need to be constrained. This dog needed to be put down. And in the same way, our sin is sick and it causes us to be sick and it spills out and it hurts us and it hurts other people. So we don't manage and constrain our sin. We put our sin to death. But worldly grief isn't interested in putting sin to death. Worldly grief is only interested in figuring out how can I manage it? How can I constrain it? How can I keep it from biting someone else? Because I love it and I don't want to get rid of it. All the while it is just waiting to tear a chunk out of you. So worldly grief is horizontal. It's emotional. It's passive. It's prideful. So after this dog bites me, you know what happens when a dog bites a person? Animal control gets involved. And so animal control came to pick up this dog and the kid gets mad at me. The kid gets mad at me that animal control came and picked up his dog that bit me, that tore a chunk out of me. And it's, it's not the dog's fault. You should have never been in my backyard. Here's how it works out for us. Hey, I'm sorry if you were offended, but, but, but what you did was offensive like, I'm, I'm sorry if your feelings were hurt, but, but what you did, it was incredibly hurtful. If my wife would just stop nagging me, then I wouldn't do these things. If my kids would just obey, if my kingdom would come and my will would be done, everything would be fine. That is prideful. And that is a worldly grief that leads only to death. So worldly grief that leads to death is horizontal, it is emotional, it is passive, and it is prideful. And so we have to recognize this. We have to recognize when we're walking in it. And the best way to do that is to figure out what does it look like to actually walk in a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance and salvation without regret. So the things that I'm about to share, they're not original to me. The first seven and a half years of my ministry, I worked in uh, recovery and I had the privilege of serving under a guy named Michael Snetzer. And so he wrote this program called Steps and uh, I taught that for seven years and uh, part of what I'm teaching right now comes directly from that. Uh, And so this is what he would say about godly grief, but we're gonna start it by reading Luke 15, And we'll start in verse 11. And it says this. And he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. 
And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So I'm going to stop there for a minute, and I'm just going to say this. I love fudge-covered Twinkies. Right. Uh, It seems like on a hard day, when things are difficult, when I'm stressed out, I can take a fudge-covered Twinkie, uh, and I can eat it, and I just feel better. Like, do you guys have anything that does that for you? I guess we're in Waco, so like Bluebell or like Chick-fil-A. Here's the funny thing. I say that, say I like fudge covered Twinkies and you guys laugh, but I promise you this, if I stood up here and said, man, when I'm stressed out and and when I don't feel comfortable, I like to look at pornography because it makes me feel a little better. Or when I'm stressed out or I'm uncomfortable, I like to get blackout drunk because it makes me feel a little better for a little bit. Nobody laughs about that. But listen, my heart towards the Lord in that moment is the same as the younger son. I wish you were dead, but you're not. So give me what's mine. Do you hear the entitlement in that? I don't want you. I don't want relationship. You're not kind. You're not generous. You're not gracious. You're not worth being in relationship with. Give me what I want. I want what's mine. I want what I'm entitled to. (laughs) So listen, I'm going to find my comfort in something that's not even really food and is absolutely horrible for me. Think about what that feels like to the God who created me and desires, longs to be in relationship with me. I find greater comfort in a Twinkie than I find in you, the God of the universe. I find greater comfort in these things that you have created than I find in you. I don't want you. I don't want relationship with you. I'm entitled to what's mine. Give it to me. This is the heart of the son towards the father. And like sin always does, it ruins him. It ruins him. And it may be slow for you, And it may not even seem like ruin at the moment, but the reality of the scriptures and the reality of your life will play out in this way. Your sin will ruin you. You will find yourself in a field longing to eat of the pods that pigs are eating and no one will give you anything. You burn every bridge, you torch every relationship because you are selfish and you want what you want and you think you're entitled to it. I said you, that's projecting I. And so if we want to see a good picture of godly grief that leads to repentance and salvation without regret, we can still find it in Luke 15. We see the heart of entitlement that would lead him to say, I don't want you, I want what you owe me. I want what I'm entitled to, give it to me now. And then after his sin ruins him, here's where we find him in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And so a godly grief that leads to repentance and salvation without regret is first and foremost vertical. It is an acknowledgement. David said it this way. Against you and you alone have I sinned. It acknowledges that before I can ever sin against anyone else, I have to first sin against God. If I do not love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I cannot love others as myself. And so my sorrow over my sin isn't just about the consequences that I'm suffering now because of it. It is a grief over the fact that my sin doesn't just cost me, but my sin is sinful. I grieve over the sinfulness of my sin. The fact that God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is perfect. And I am not. And it rolls up in the acknowledgement that And God, I have sinned against you. And this sin has not only spilled out to ruin my life, but it's spilling out onto others and it is ruining theirs. So a godly grief that leads to repentance and salvation without regret is first and foremost vertical. We acknowledge that when we treat God with contempt and the things of God with contempt, we will absolutely treat others with contempt. And that is vertical. Verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So godly grief is not only vertical, but it is also spiritual. Hear the change of heart in that statement. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Give me what belongs to me. Give me what's mine. That's different. And so there is a change in the heart of the son towards the father. Where he sees that he is now unworthy to be called a son. And so a godly grief changes our view of ourselves and it changes our view of God. And as we begin to live in light of who we are and who God is, then our heart begins to change. Continually, right? That's that's what being transformed from one degree of glory to the next means. That my heart changes from this to this to this to ultimately Jesus. Or I look like him. But it is a spiritual change. It's not purely emotional. It's not just tears and snot because I'm sad about my sin. It is a change of heart. A change of desire. A change of affection. Third, godly grief that leads to repentance and salvation without regret is active. And so verse 20 says that he, the son, arose and he came to his father. And so after this dog bit this huge hunk out of my rear, I ran home and I knew I was in trouble because I wasn't supposed to be hanging out with that kid. So I ran past uh, the living room where my mother was and I went into the bathroom. I turned on the bath, I stripped down and then I jumped in the bath. And as I sat down, I realized there's a problem. 
I looked down and I saw blood floating in the water and there was a massive sting. And so I stick my finger back there to assess for the first time the damage and my finger goes into my bottom and I'm like, oh no. So what I have to acknowledge in that moment is, man, I'm injured, I'm busted up here and there's nothing I can do to fix it on my own. And so I had to go in to my mother and I had to confess, I did what you told me not to do and it cost me. And in the same way, God has given us these means of grace in order to fight and war against our sin, not passively, not waiting for everything to change, but actually actively pursuing that change, right? And so listen, I confess my sin, not because Jesus loves me more when I confess my sin, but because I want to war well against my sin and grow and mature in my faith. I gather with a connection group, not because Jesus loves me more when I gather with my connection group, but because I want to war well against my sin and I want to grow and mature in my faith. I study the word of God, not because Jesus loves me more when I study his word, but because I want to war well against my sin and I want to grow and mature in my faith. I try and live a generous life, not because Jesus loves me when I give more, but because I want to war well against my selfish sin and I want to grow and mature in my faith. But those things are active. You do not fall into godliness. It does not happen by accident. We actively pursue it knowing that it is not our actions or our good behavior that justify us before God, but it is absolutely those things that position us under the waterfall of his grace and give us the heart change that we hopefully are so desperately longing for. So I actively war against my sin by taking advantage of all the means of grace that God has gifted me with. Godly grief is Active, And then finally, godly grief is humble, right? And we see that in the statement of the son, I will arise, I'll go to my father, I'll say to him, father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Uh, treat me as one of your hired servants. I think the best place that I see this exemplified outside of Jesus is uh, in Luke 7. There's a story where Jesus is, the, is at the house of a Pharisee and he's having dinner uh, and, and it says, a woman of the city, that means a prostitute, learns that Jesus is there. And so she busts in on this dinner. She falls at his feet, weeping, wiping his feet with her tears and her hair. Humbling herself, understanding the depth and the depravity of her sin. Knowing that Jesus has rescued me from this and her response is to fall down at his feet, weeping and wiping his feet with her hair. She owns her sin and she turns to the one who delivers. So it's not, my sin's bad because you don't like it. It's not really bad because it's bad. It's bad because you don't like it. It says, my sin is horrible because it's sinful. It's an affront to you. And there's nothing I can do to clean myself up on my own. I need someone to do that for me. 
And what the scriptures tell us, what we talked about at the very beginning, right? The stake in the ground, the good news of the gospel is that we have a savior who has done just that. He has freed me to pursue him. I'm not trapped and a slave to my sin any longer. It doesn't mean I won't sin, but it means that I don't have to wallow in it. It means that I can turn away from my sin and I can run to Jesus and what I will find there is wholeness and healing. So Ephesians 2 says it like this. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he made us, he made us alive. And then he goes on to say, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And just in case you are tempted to think that this is now something that you have to do, he says this, and this is a gift. By grace, you have been saved through faith so that no one can boast. There is nothing else you need to do. You are secure in Christ. When he spread out his arms on the cross and said, it is finished, he meant it for good. All sin, past, present, and future. The sins you've committed, the sins you are committing right now, and the sins that you will commit tomorrow, paid for in the cross of Christ. Because you have been saved, rescued, delivered. You are being saved, rescued, delivered. And ultimately, you will be saved, rescued, and delivered. Not because of your good behavior, but because the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for you. So when, so when God looks on me in the moment of my deepest shame, he sees holy, righteous, perfect. Who wants to raise their hand and say, I feel perfect right now? No one, right? But when God looks on you, that's what he sees. Not because you are. Not because you're worthy. Not because you're awesome. But because Jesus was perfect. And his blood has been given as a propitiation for you. Do you know what that word means, propitiation? Let me explain it to you. In the Greek, it's uh, hilasterion, right? And, And the picture is this. Um, in the Old Testament, when someone has sinned, they took a hyssop branch and they dip it in blood and they sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And that's evidence that by that blood, your sin can be forgiven. And that's how it describes Jesus as a propitiation, as the mercy seat on which blood is sprinkled so that you can find justification with God, so that you can be made right before God. And none of that blood was your own. And so we celebrate the fact that in our deepest need, our need for rescue, our need for redemption, there's nothing that we need to do except rest in what Christ has already done for us. And then I position myself under the waterfall of grace, trusting and believing that God's not gonna leave me where I am, but he has promised to complete the good work that he started in me in the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, that God would drive those truths deep in our heart and that we would believe them. So I don't have to isolate myself in my sin and try and figure out how to manage it, try and figure out how to take care of it. But I can confess it, knowing that he's not wringing his hand saying, when are you going to get it together? When are you going to figure it out? 
But like the father in Luke 15, he is waiting and what he will give us. This is wants to put a robe on our shoulders to cover our guilt and our shame, a ring on our finger to remind us that we are not servants. We are sons and daughters, shoes on our feet to remind us that, man, we've been cut up and busted up because we've been trying to walk this thing out barefoot on our own, but we can walk in confidence towards the father, knowing that he is waiting and then listen. You know what he does last? He throws a rager for his boy who's come home. This, my son was lost. Now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. Kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. Does that sound like a God who's disappointed in you? Does that sound like a God who is done with you? No. And so, man, some men and women are gonna come up to the front and and here's my challenge to you this morning. Two types of sorrow two types of grief. One's gonna lead you to death and a whole lot of regret. One leads to repentance and salvation without regret. For me this morning, I I choose salvation without regret. And so why, why don't we stand up just for a minute, just stand up and I'll say this, men and women at the front, Man, if you feel the need to drag some sin, some darkness into the light, these men and women, they would love to talk with you. They would love to pray with you. If you don't feel like you're in a place where you can do that, you can walk right past them and you can come to the altar and you can deal with the Lord the way that he's calling you to deal with him right now. But our response of faith is always repentance. To position ourselves humbly before God and ask him to do what we cannot do on our own, and that is to change our hearts. And so I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna walk off this stage, and then you guys can deal with the Lord the way he's calling you to deal with him. So Father, you are good. You are kind. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love for us this morning. You long to set us free from our sin. You long to give us the freedom that can be had in Christ. We don't have to worry about what's in our back. We don't have to worry about getting busted. We can just lay it all out before you. And what we know is that we will find mercy and grace and healing. And so for my brothers and sisters in this room, would you draw them to yourself today? For those in here who don't know you, would you save today? For those in here who are struggling, would you free today? And in all of it, would you exalt Jesus in our heart, our perfect sacrifice who has given us everything we need to be right before you? We pray all of these things in his powerful name. Amen.